Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Big Bottom, Washington. And the reason we're in Washington today is because our guest, Jeff Troutman, lives in Seattle. So, Jeff, what about Big Bottom? Anywhere close Big to Big Bottom. There's a lot of them here that say that it's an old term for the freighters that would come through. <laughs> Construe that maybe there would be a gender reference there. Now, this is about old freighters coming through the Puget Sound. They call them Big Bottoms. Old freighters coming through. That's, sure, yeah, that's, Jeff. I'm sure that's the origin. In fact, Wikipedia tells me that I'm correct. <laughs> Great recovery. Wasn't there a song that about bottoms? I just heard it the other day. It's one of my favorites. I don't remember. Yeah, I think it was a Steely Dan cut from an album that didn't sell well in the 70s. <laughs> oh, are, you on, are you on Wikipedia again? No, no. That was, that, was, that was just right out of thin air. Hey, Jeff, we are glad to have you with us. Uh, Jeff Troutman is a dear friend and a fellow who's had a long career in coaching. So, Jeff, maybe you could share just a little bit about your background, who you are, what you've done, some of the highlights of your career work, and then we can get down to talking about coaching. Sure. In a nutshell, you know, I started out, as you did, as a math teacher and realized quickly that I was not going to survive since I couldn't spell calculus, let alone figure out what to do after teaching algebra and geometry. So I uh, got a master's degree in guidance and counseling and, as you know, went into student development for three or four years and realized that I didn't want to be like Bob. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed what our relationship in college, but had no clue what you did as an administrator. Although I was wildly successful, I let that go and then found my way into career consulting through a season of uh, underemployment and unemployment and started a program here in Seattle in 1983 with a nonprofit and did that for about 13 years and became an executive in that organization for the last six years. And then realized I really missed doing the work with one-on-one -on -one with people and found a, a small consulting firm that I joined in 1996 that was doing corporate outplacement and a, another guy and I built that practice up. And about five years into this, along the way, people would ask us, hey, I, we really appreciate the good work you're doing helping folks transition out of the organization. But do you ever help folks inside the organization that we want to keep that have issues? Well, sure, we do that. <laughs> so that's how I got into coaching in the late 90s. And uh, over the next six years, built that to about 30 to 40 percent of our practice. And it all started with just an idea. We called it success coaching, which was coaching to accomplish some outcome for one of our clients mm. and then built some structure around that. And early on, we left 30 percent of the fee on the table based on results. And then I realized, well, nobody does that. <laughs> <laughs> But that became increasingly more of my practice. And then when I left that organization in 2008, I carried my accounts with me and did coaching for six years on my own. Well, you know, maybe a good place to start, Jeff, with that background is to talk about your view of the nature of coaching, the nature of that relationship. How do you envision it? How do you see the coaching relationship? In our practice, we had to identify what are the ingredients of coaching. And I kind of look at it, you're part high priest, part psychologist, part organizational thought leader. And um, the coaching piece is a chance just to come alongside someone who others see has an issue, whether they see it or not, 
and help them have a developmental experience that moves them forward. I always saw it as a privilege, really. Most of the time, they're very capable folks. You get a chance to come alongside, help them see something different in their world that they don't see. And it's a privileged position. It almost sounds like one of the things you saw in coaching or one of the things to strive to was insight. When you say help them gain a perspective, come alongside them, be a thought partner, is to help them get insights into their own life. Want to push that any further? Insight is part of it. For the coaching I did, I did a lot of performance-based coaching. So usually the sponsor had something in mind in terms of a behavior that they wanted this person to move forward on. And I would say a lot of times what I did was not rocket science. It was just paying attention. Mm. And that started with sponsors saying, well, you know, this is a new leader, but they're not doing a very good job of team building. Mm. And so my question was, well, what would success look like? If they were doing a great job of team building, what would you see them doing that they're not doing now? I said, well, they'd be more proactive. And if they, if they were more proactive, what would that look like? So everybody has in their mind what success looks like, but sometimes they can't quite tell you. For me, the insight part was a way to get people to the success outcome. But usually on the front end, it, it really wasn't rocket science. It was just getting that sponsor to tell me if they're going to invest this kind of money and hire me for a period of time, what is it they want to see out of it? And what I would do then is commit to deliver that and found a process I could use that engaged the client and built up their sense of who they were and worked with them in a way that they could sustain a change after I left. So were you ever successful? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> this was kind of interesting. The, one of the very first clients was a huge guy in bioscience, brought in millions of dollars to an organization and had two weeks to, to get a coach because of sexual harassment issues. They'd given the guy six months to get a coach. So two weeks before they said, you either get a coach or you're out, calls me and come and meets with me. And this he was furious. This guy had supported women in his practice for years. And they would come back in his office and, and say, thank you. But he got in the habit of calling them sweetheart and honey in the workplace where out of his 200 employees, 70% of them were women. And they were watching this and saying, this isn't acceptable anymore. This was not rocket science. It was getting him to realize he had a view that was 20 years outdated. Mm. And when he realized that, we just found some different language and a different way for him to express his appreciation for women in the workplace and certainly women that he had promoted. You were wildly successful then. It was wildly successful. That's wildly right. He, successful. he changed and, you know, there there you go. I'll ask a side question there because it, it is of interest to me and I, I can ask whatever I want. <laughs> Did he appreciate, did he as a client end up appreciating your relationship, the thought partner relationship, or to the end was he resisted and said, okay, I'm doing this, but we're done as quick as we can. Number one, he was upset. I think what he appreciated was that he could vent all of this. And we could then take a look at it and say, that's who you are. There's nothing wrong with who you are, but how you express it, the organizational life has changed today and you need to find new language. Mm -hmm. So let's revisit those same things and use some language that you can use that will then not only still communicate the value you feel towards women you've worked with, but communicate value in the workplace that young women that are around you will also see you in a respectful way. And I think the bottom line is he's done very well. But that was just a hiccup along the way that something that he needed to learn. And oftentimes that's the case, that these are very capable people, that their heart's in the right place. They want to be successful, but they're tripping over something 
that they haven't quite identified that if they just put a little time and investment into it can actually move them further faster. So I suspect you still get a Christmas card from him every year. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, this is one that I would quite sure I would never hear from him again because I was associated with something that he wanted to put behind him. Mm. I was happy that we could put something in front of him that helped them move forward. He, he was just glad that he got the help and he moved on. I was actually hoping for the other outcome, which was there would even be money in the Christmas cards. I think there was I think there was twenty five dollars if they promised not to say anything. So that's, you know. <laughs> JT, in a lot of your coaching contact, historically, even currently, if you have some, do you find a significant level of misunderstanding of how these people you're coaching affect others, that their perception of themselves is very, very different from others' perception of them? Um, yeah, I do sometimes find that. One of the interesting things then that I built in this in terms of thinking of structure is I would not coach anybody unless I had a chance to gather anecdotal feedback. And I, I used a three-question approach. Uh, you know, I, I would have both the sponsor and the person give me six to eight names of people that I could talk to just to get feedback because this is an opportunity for them to see how they're viewed in the organization. And then I would blend that so that the lion's share of the uh, people that were on that list came from the person I'm working with. And then, you know, maybe 30 to 40% of the names came from the sponsor. In order to get some clarity around how they're viewed, uh, I would go out and then I would ask three questions. I'd ask everybody, what is it you appreciate about working with this person? And I would take down every positive thought and roll that up into the feedback. Second thing I would ask them is, what strengths do you see them evidencing in the job that make them successful? Same thing, I would take down every note, every comment, and roll that up into a couple paragraphs. And then the third question, is there an area of behavior change, skill development, that would enhance their contribution in their role? And there, I would take down all the comments, but I would only share those that were confirmed by two or three. And so what you end up doing then is helping that person get a view of themselves. Two-thirds of it is all positive. And the part that's developmental for consideration is things that are shared by multiple people that would say, you know, everybody's got an idea what somebody could do better. But when two or three people said, you know, it would really help him if he actually found some time to step back and do some planning for the team. Or it'd be really helpful if, if he could get rid of the emotionally charged communication that happens when he's disappointed in us. That was a game changer because the client couldn't get that for themselves and took it out of the box. Well, my boss has, you know, I don't know what my boss is smoking, but, you know, I, I don't have, you know, really, he should look at her or she should look in the mirror and say, you know, I need Jeff Troutman for coaching, not me. So it gets us out of that arena and gets them to think about how they're valued in the organization and what could they do to enhance their value, which most of them, if they could see it, would want to address it. You made a move just now, Jeff, to talk a little bit about structure. And actually, I think given the fact that we're so time boxed in terms of these podcasts, I would like to save that conversation of structure to maybe the next time we get to visit. But clearly, one of the things I want to make sure that the uh, listening audience heard was when you go into coaching relationships, you need to get information. You need to get data. You need to get feedback from the people who surround that person in order to have something to say to them, to have something that really is empirically based in terms of information about them. And then you talked a little bit about how you gathered that. And I would like to make sure we grab that again. In response to Ray's question, I heard you say, yeah, frequently people don't see it. They don't They don't mm-hmm. even agree with it. And the feeling you have is that if I didn't have that information that I've now gathered, 
it would be pretty difficult to offset that person's perception of themselves, which is no. not consistent. Am I right there in terms of that summary? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they might also see that this is just their manager that doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, that great. What I'm going to do is we're going to go out to your colleague and it'll give you a chance to confirm whether that what your manager is saying has any validity or not. We're not relying on the person that's sponsoring me to be here to be the, the truth teller. Mm-hmm. We're just saying there's a legitimate expectation that he or she has about you that if there is some value for you to pay attention to that and it's rec- and it's confirmed by other people, you're going to be more successful if you pay attention to that and find a way to make some adjustments. And I'm going to help you do that. Okay. And I don't want to put words in Ray's mouth, very unsanitary, but I think where I think where he was headed was in a couple of our previous podcasts, we talked about the role of the coach and the importance of that coach being able to make observations or to challenge that person in terms of their own thinking about how they view themselves. And maybe to follow up, how do you do that? I mean, clearly you've had clients that you've got to challenge their perceptions. And you already said, one way I do it is to collect information in advance that gives them feedback, most of it positive based on the way I collect it. But when you think about the way you challenge a client to think differently based on your observations, any particular ways you do that? You know, I think it kind of gets back to trust. From the beginning, I'm trying to develop a trust relationship with this person. And uh, there's some other things I do that I think from the beginning that they would see that I'm for them Hmm. and I get who they are. And I also get a little bit about where they are. The other thing I found almost inevitably in the first 20 minutes of a conversation with somebody they will confess something about themselves that is a touch point for our relationship. You know, it may be just a casual conversation. You know, I've never suffered fools well, or, you know, I make the main thing the main thing, or, you know, I don't know what their problem is. It's something that you see, but you don't have a trust relationship yet. It's a window. And I so often would say the easiest thing to do is to go in a coaching relationship and see where somebody could change. The hardest thing to do is to earn the right to speak to that. Hmm. And so what I've tried to do from the very first conversation is to build some level of trust and engagement with the person that I'm for them primarily. I'm for them. I want to see them succeed. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that our engagement moves them forward in their work life and their work relationships. And if you have that trust, then somewhere in the midst of the, the data gathering and the conversations and the identifying of specific behavior, they begin to think that you're for them and work with you around it. One of the things in light of what you're saying, Jeff, that I think is profitable to create some of that trust is letting them know that when you're collecting this data, when you're collecting this information, you don't presume that it's the truth of the world. Mm-hmm. You presume it is the truth for the people speaking it, but they have that perception. And I often find that people let down their guard when you're not assuming that what others are telling you is the complete truth. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're not likely to believe you're on someone else's side, mm-hmm. but you're just saying, look, we may never know the truth of the world, and you might not know the entire truth. But the fact is, if people are telling you this, and this is their perception of you, then it's wise of you as a leader to manage that perception. Yeah. Make sure that that perception, if you feel it's inaccurate, that you change it. Yeah. That you behave in a manner that changes that perception so that people begin to see, well, maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe that isn't the truth. Yeah. And you bring up a good point. I mean, the choice is still there. You know, if you, you can present some information, but if, if they don't believe it, then 
you work with that belief, that choice of theirs. So what do they want to do to move forward in light of this? Most of the time, because most of the feedback is so positive, people just don't get positive feedback today. So, you know, two thirds of the feedback is so positive that it tends to open up a window for some recommendations here that the people that care about this guy and have some bandwidth with them to, to change. It's acceptable rather than if all I was doing was laying out a bunch of stuff that people think is doing wrong, um, there'd be no real inclination to want to take some of that on. I want the listening audience to make sure they've heard that in your mind, the key to a coaching relationship is building that trust relationship with the person, the client or the subordinate, whoever the coach is and their relationship. And a part of building that trust relationship is one, to be supportive and for them to see you as supportive. And the other is sharing that positive information, which I find interesting. And I'd like to push back in our next episode about that. But the notion of when you give them a lot of positive information, that causes that trust to build from your perspective. Yes, absolutely. I have one other thing that in light of what Jeff is saying, that very often when you collect information on people, sometimes it's to a feedback form, a written one, where you get anonymous feedback. One of the things I try to be mindful of is if there is a comment that is in the extreme, say on Likert scale, someone puts a five rather than something in between. Mm-hmm. If there's only one of those, I don't dismiss it, but I don't include it. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's an outlier. And I think that probably, and it turns out to be fairly true, is that that's a function of a single event. Yeah. That kind of extreme response is a function of one or two events between them and this mm-hmm. person that the person I'm coaching may not even remember, yeah. recall, that is being held against them. Yes. So that kind of feedback really doesn't help much in the coaching process. So I, like I say, I don't dismiss it in terms of eliminate it, but I don't include it. Because I'm yeah. not sure it could be verified by more, like you said, Jeff, two sources, more than two sources. If not, then I don't include that as a viable. Yeah, that two to three source rule, just those extremes tend to go away. So we're, we're dealing with something that has a little more substance to it. And client usually connects a little bit more with the feedback. Yeah, right. Great insight. Well, amazingly, we have reached our time limit. Jeff, can we get you back? Absolutely. Love to That's- come back. We've got so much more to share, and this has just been the starting point of the conversation. We will be from another town in Washington the next time we return. So would want you to be sure to start reading your map of Washington so that you're... Well, there's a sunbelt where there's a tops-down town. So after bottoms up, you might want to think of the tops-down. as where you know people can drive with their convertible all year because there's a sunbelt in Washington. People wouldn't believe it, but it, it's there. It is there. Well, we'll You'll check find that it. out. Sure. And what was one of the other cities we might visit? Was it Chuckanut? Chuckanut. Chuckanut. Is that where Chuckanut U is? No, that's where Chuckanut Throw is. That's the that's a, that's north of us where you can actually Chuckanut across the Puget Sound and it'll hit the other side if you have any kind of strength. It's a, it's a long story, but you won't find it on Wikipedia, I can tell you that. But I'll be happy to enlarge on it next time. Okay, well, we'll cut up and probably come from Chuckanut then. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> the twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is, almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod 
for the score that both began and ended this podcast. 